Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers show. And today we have a really interesting topic for finance professionals and finance leaders out there. And that's around what we really need to be knowing about cybersecurity and cyber risk management. So we're very fortunate to have Kip Boyle with us today, whom I've gotten to know a bit over the last few weeks. Kip has not only gained this expertise since the very early days of the internet, but since then he's authored a book, he hosts his own podcast. So it's fantastic to have him with us because it allows us the benefit of his experience, particularly over this podcast medium, to break down how we could be looking at cyber security and cyber risk management through the lens of finance. The first topic we delve into is to why nowadays cyber really needs to be treated as a material risk that, that potentially impacts the going concern or viability of a lot of our organizations that we work in and serve. We then jump a bit further into the important role finance leaders, professionals, accountants can play in cyber risk management, as well as some of the potential pitfalls to be aware of. And actually one story on how some members of the finance team actually lost their jobs, even though they didn't commit the fraud. We then go through the story and actually how Kip got into cyber risk management, which I suppose 20, 30 years ago might have been an odd career choice. So I think that's a really interesting story, how Kip has developed his understanding in the meantime, but also how cyber risk management's evolved. We go into the emerging trends. And also, because Kip's had all this experience, he recounts a fascinating story with a CFO named Steve, whom he worked with when he was the chief information security officer. And it helped him start to formalize a four-dimensional model that helped Kip and also the CFO and fellow finance leaders helped them frame and prioritize resource allocations involving cyber risk management so that CFOs and finance leaders could justify why they were spending money out on new activities in, in this space of cyber versus the traditional sales ops and so on. So look, hope you find this episode insightful. I certainly learn so much every time I have a conversation with Kip. So again, really appreciate having him on the show. If you want to find out more about Kip, some of the key quotes, timestamp the links to some nice freebies during our conversations, show notes and transcripts. And you can find that and more at sitnshow.com. So look, that's enough for me for now. So without further ado, over to Kip and the show. So Kip, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate that you've invited me to be here and to spend a little bit of time with you and your audience. We should be the ones appreciative of you here, Kip, because I've loved our conversation so far. So I'm really excited to share you with our audience. You've fascinating uh, insights to share on a very important area. I think as finance professionals, leaders, CFOs, we need to understand a bit better because I feel it's probably perhaps underappreciated from a business perspective. But before we get into that, would you mind maybe sharing with us how you got into your present career choice? 
Oh, happy to do it. Yeah. Just so everybody knows, I work in the field of cyber risk management. And I've been doing that for a long time. And the way I got involved in this is I was a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and I was assigned to a unit on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And what we did there was we fired air-to-air -air missiles. And instead of having a warhead, they would actually have a telemetry package so that we could have a radio on the missile actually transmitting what the missile was doing as it was trying to track the target and then actually intercept the target. The whole point here was to fire the missile in a way where we would expect it to fail, and then we would learn more about its capabilities, and then we could use that information to make the missile better, ultimately. My job in the midst of all that was to make sure that the computer systems were running because we would get that telemetry stream, we'd digitize it, we'd put it into the computers, we'd have scientists evaluate it and so forth. As you can imagine, that was all highly classified work. And so in order for me to do my job, I needed to learn how to protect that data, to protect those systems. And so I backed into it. And what's funny about it when I reflect on this and, and think about it is, for some reason, I had an affinity for the data protection part of our mission, which everybody else thought was nothing more than a giant pain in the ass. And nobody wanted to do it. And so there were all these additional duties. And once they found out that I kind of liked it, they all brought me all these additional duties. And I backed into this. I was the expert at all this stuff. And I don't know, but I just really enjoyed it. And that was back in 1992. And so here I am. I'm still doing the same work. But of course, everything changes, Andrew. So the job isn't what it was. And I love that. I love the fact that there's so much change because there's always new problems to solve. There are principles though, right, that are enduring. And I think that's really a key part of my work is, is knowing what the principles are and then bringing them to a new problem because that's what really helps me get by. Yeah, that's a great way of summarizing it because the principles probably stay the same, but you must have seen so many things change from a technological perspective. Oh, yes. I think back in the early 90s, I think from one of our previous conversations, you were saying that it wasn't even being used in any commercial way. That's right. So, yeah, the internet you know, was nothing more than a research network. And there were defense contractors, military bases, universities, and that sort of thing. In fact, the terms of service on the internet back then were such that you couldn't sell anything like... Nothing at all. Even if you had like a bicycle that you no longer wanted, you couldn't actually say for sale my bicycle as if you could on a bulletin board in a dormitory if you were you know, going to school or something. You couldn't even sell so much as a personal item. And now look where we are, right? It's fascinating to watch the evolution of the internet and how it has enabled so much. But has also, of course, everybody knows, has also opened the door to crime on a global scale that we've never seen before. That, that's it. Crime is probably for a lot of businesses moved from something that was quite local to global. And like people probably thought the internet or the cloud is this sort of place. But it actually, one thing I loved again about getting to know you and your work was actually the cloud isn't just a place, but it's a business model. And just like cyber risk management, this the cyberverse we're in. It is a place where perhaps we can make some commercial gain from. Mm -hmm. But when you, there's an opportunity to make some commercial gain as a business, there's also the risk involved with that too, that right. we perhaps make a loss. Yeah. from all these new places that we never had to worry about. The cloud is new and different, but at the end of the day, there's something that's enduring here, which I think would help people understand, which is the cloud is just somebody else's computer, all right? At the end of the day, it's just somebody else's computer. And that means that you're entrusting somebody with your digital assets. And so you've got to think that through. What will they do to protect my digital assets? What will they not do 
and therefore are counting upon me to do because they can't do everything. They're going to do a lot, which is super helpful. Like most of us don't want to run the kind of data centers that Google and Apple and Amazon run, right? Because they're incredibly expensive affairs. They're yeah. enormous and we don't want that. We don't want to have to purchase hand geometry readers and iris scanners and all that stuff. So the cloud takes that off our plate, which is wonderful. But what cloud doesn't take off our plate is that we've got to still do permission management, for example. We still need to put the right permissions on our files. But with cloud, we no longer have a small team of highly trained IT administrators who deeply understand that permission model and set it correctly. We now have everybody in the organization is now playing the role of permission manager, but none of them have been trained how to do this. Yeah. So actually talk of that training accountants, finance professionals, we go through an awful lot of training accreditation. So cyber risk management was not an area we covered. So and that's true for marketing our... people and data scientists uh, and yeah, extrapolated across the organization. So Kip, a bit of a crash course for us as it pertains to the finance leaders listening in today in our audience. What are their sort of main responsibilities in your mind in this place? And how could they perhaps look at digesting this in an easy manner. Yeah, cyber risk may in the beginning seem abstract and difficult, <laughs> right? And it is both of those things, but it's not too abstract and it's not too difficult for a finance leader because finance leaders deal with abstract things all the time. Um, yeah. So this is just a different type of abstract. And so if you can handle preparing quarterly statements and that sort of business, and if you can look at a, a complicated spreadsheet and then tell a story to a business leader about what the spreadsheet's really saying, if you can do that, then I would say that you have the skills to actually um, approach cyber risk. Now, I think from a responsibility perspective, it's not about getting permissions correct, although that's certainly part of the landscape. But what I would encourage uh, finance leaders to do is to realize something very important and then act on it, which is cyber is a material risk. It hasn't always been a material risk, all right? And I think that the folks who are in finance leadership jobs today, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever they started their career, cyber was not a material risk. And so they didn't yeah. get sensitized to this, but it's become a material risk. It's actually an existential risk. And so if you don't manage risks to your sales pipeline, your order fulfillment capability, and your accounts receivable, right? So if you mess up in any one of those areas, if you can't sell ship orders or collect money due, you're going out of business, right? And now you have to put cyber on the same tier of importance as risks in those other areas. And now you've got to treat those risks, right? And I know finance leaders are taught about risk and risk treatment. So this is just something else you're going to put into your field of view as you treat it. Now, that's one thing, right, is that cyber is a material risk. It must be treated appropriately. But there's a second responsibility that I really want to point out, which is you have to make sure that the cybersecurity budget is creating as much business value as possible. Exactly, because that's probably what comes, okay, so this is a risk. How much is it going to cost me to go solve it? Maybe cost is the wrong way of looking at it. It's got to drive value. Yeah. It's spend. Yeah. You can look at it as a cost of doing business, or you can look at it as an investment. Right? There's different ways you can frame the spend. I leave that up to you to decide how you want to frame it. However you frame it, you need to realize that it's not negotiable for the most part. Would you negotiate away a material risk of any other kind? You wouldn't, right? You wouldn't just accept <laughs> a material risk as being, well, that's just the way the world works and I'm not gonna spend any money on it. You wouldn't do that. So it's the same well, thing here, but you've well, gotta make sure there's for, great business value. 
Yeah, I've got to come in there, Kip, because we're putting the business to one side for a minute. You just remind me, come back into my head. The first story you tell in your book mm. is about the fake president's email. And I'm thinking, well, even from a career perspective, <laughs> it can be fairly limiting on a CFO. And in that story, yeah. actually, you tell the story, actually, yeah. on that one, because yeah. tell it was so much better than me. So really simply put, there was a fake email that came into an accounts payable department at a, a maker of spare parts for Airbus and Boeing. And it was purported to have been sent by the president of the company. And it asked the accounts, I think it was an accounts payable person, to transfer some money. Now, this email was terse. It was vague. It came in at a weird time of the day. And it was designed very purposefully to uh, manipulate the emotions of the person who received it. And they felt like they were serving the president well by responding to this email to move this money. But at the end of the day, what it turned out was it was a multi-million fraud and the money disappeared. They recovered a little bit of it, but the majority of it was stolen. Now that caused the entire financial outcome of the firm for the year to go from a net profit to a net loss. The entire organization went into a net loss for the year because of one carefully crafted email, right? One malicious little email did that. And so the business consequence of that was that the board of directors lost confidence in the president and released him. And then they went and released the CFO. And then they went and released the accounts payable person. Now you can argue whether that was fair or not, but it happened. The trajectory of that company was changed forever and the careers of those people were never the same. So I think with a lot of these, there's a financial implication, a financial outcome. And I think that's why it's very hard to divorce the CFO or the finance team, even right. someone in accounts payable from it. And think about it. A typical finance leader would probably say something, well, that wasn't fair because it was a fish and the IT people <laughs> should have stopped it. <clears throat> no, yeah. thanks for playing our game. You're wrong because you can't depend on the IT people to stop all phishing attacks and phishing attacks come by the millions and they're very carefully crafted. These are not really technological attacks at all. These are cons, these are emotional manipulations. This is what you call social engineering. And so the right mitigation for that, quite frankly, is better process. It has nothing to do with technology, really. Thanks for breaking that down because I can imagine that was going through some people's heads. Sure. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But really at the end of the day, it just so happens that it was an email that delivered an emotional bomb that went off in somebody's inner monologue and they were spurred to action. And they should have instead had a procedure that prevented them from moving that money. There should have been a procedure that said, if a money transfer request comes by email, no matter what, you must receive a second authorization because we know that email is so dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And again, I'm thinking that second authorization, something like that's definitely been with me, even in my more junior roles as well. Like that control has been there. Yeah. Like, that's not an IT control. That no. is a, a finance control. That's yes. just good control. That's right. Yeah. That's just good control. Exactly. And that's why my allegation here is that you don't need to be a technological wizard to understand cyber risk and to treat it. That's a great example because it shows, okay, I know it was is a bad outcome for finance company, but it actually shows the rest of us way that we can make a big difference here in finance as finance leaders, controllers, and so on. Kim. Mm -hmm. We can really make a difference. That's why I think it's important we talk a bit more about cyber risk management. And I know I came in there when you were describing material risk and how we'd go about it. Yeah, sorry, I know I interrupted, but I love that story so much. I really wanted to share it. Sorry, well, it's, sorry. So, so it's in my book, as you said, and I hope people listen to the end of the episode because I have an offer for you so you can read that story for yourself okay we love free things in finance and accounting Kip. <laughs> yeah so, so here comes a free thing that. but just hang on because we're still in the middle of this conversation exactly. right so the second 
big responsibility for finance leaders with respect to cyber risk is, again, this business value, right? You've got to make sure that every dollar spent is going to create as much business value as possible. Now, the typical approach to doing a business value calculation would be like a return on investment or a business case. And your listeners might even have a templated business case spreadsheet that they give to people who come along with great ideas. If you give me $25,000, I can make us a better website and or I can go generate more sales leads or I can do better scheduling of the operations team so we can decrease cost. So everybody's got all these great ideas. The problem with cyber risk and cybersecurity is that its business value is greater. Its potential is greater than just money back. It is possible to get money back from a spend on cybersecurity, but there's so much more to it. And I do talk about that in my book, of course, and it's a business value model. And maybe I should just step through it lightly. Yeah, if you could, I like the way you broke it down. But actually, there was a good story behind you actually arrived at that yeah. model as well, isn't it? Because that was, again, from an interaction with finance, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So before I explain the model, let me tell you how it came around. <laughs> there's a story behind the model. Yeah, yeah, there's always a story. <laughs> so I became a chief information security officer in 2003, and I was working for an insurance company. The first couple of years I was there, I'd been submitting requests, budget requests and so forth. And so then after a couple of years goes by, my boss calls me and I was working for the chief information officer. And he said, Steve, the CFO has just talked to me and he's asking me all these questions about your budgets. And I said, okay, what does he want to know? And he goes, actually, I think you should just go talk to him, which I thought was strange. Like, Wait, you want me to go talk to your peer? Well, why don't you tell him? I got things to do. Like, I don't get this. So I was just a little confused. So I went to go talk to Steve, the CFO, and he was great. I didn't know what to expect, but he was fantastic. And really what he said to me was, I've been seeing your budget requests come through and I just don't know how to think about them. And I said, well, say more. And he said, you want $25,000. He picked one up, right? So you want $25,000 for this gizmo, this cybersecurity thing that's going to help us do something with phishing. And I said, yes, that's right. And he goes, well, but over here, I've got another business case for 20, you know, and they want to redo our website. And I've got one here where they want to generate more sales leads. And I've got one here for a new scheduling system for the customer service department. And he goes, I understand those other ones but I don't know how to understand yours. I've got $25,000 to spend. What do I spend it on? Right now, he was actually doing me a big favor because I think he could have easily have said, Kip's proposal is gobbledygook. I don't understand it and I don't have any time for this. I'm just going to spend it on something I understand and that the CEO will understand. Because remember, exactly. the CFO has to tell the CEO, hey, we're going to approve this $25,000, 25,000 euros, whatever, to increase sales leads. And we know because this is our conversion rate that should show up as this much top line revenue increase. So it's very straightforward. But if he's going to approve mine, how does he explain that? How does he tell the CEO exactly. that was a good spend? So that's what this was all about. Kip, help me know how to tell people about this. And so I said, ah, this is great. Wonderful. Let's work together. And so it took months of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and me trying something because I was talking ones and zeros at that point in my career. I didn't know it. I thought I was actually doing pretty good, not talking in ones and zeros, but this was formative, right? This was yeah. formative for my work that I do today. If I hadn't gone through this with Steve, the CFO, I don't think I would be nearly as able to help people as I do today. Yeah, I'm glad you elaborated on that story because, again, I think even some of Rodin's could relate to sometimes when we're talking to operations or sales, we could be talking in ones and zeros. It's just pounds, pence, dollars, yeah. euro. And we're just trying to meet each other in the middle so we can get some common language yeah. so we can explain. I think if you can explain what someone's doing to someone else, you're doing well. And I think that's what I love about your business. Yeah, so this is about explaining 
why are we doing this and and what's in it for you because really what we're talking about here is a complicated sell right it can't just be kip saying give me 25 grand it's got to yeah. be and because when every one of those other proposals is denied because kip got the 25 grand they all want to know why exactly wait a exactly. minute you're telling me that you're not going to let me generate more sales leads redo the website better schedule by folks what could possibly yeah. be more important than that that's exactly. the question exactly. The CFO has got to answer that question. So that's how I came to create my business value model. Now it's in my book. And so I'm not going to unpack it fully, yeah. but I, I'm going to tell you what the four dimensions are. So there's increased reliability of operations. That's one way that cybersecurity spend can come back as a bonus or as a positive for the business. Reduced legal risk, reduced technical risk, and then finally financial return. So those are the four. Now, what's interesting about cybersecurity is that a dollar spent on cybersecurity could deliver value in one of those four dimensions or two or three, or possibly even all four of those dimensions at the same time. And so if you're not fully recognizing all the value that dollar is getting you, then I think that you can't possibly see all the business value in play. Yeah, you really deconstruct it and unpack it nicely in the book and and again i even saw a lovely one pager on it as well so again it's it's a great concept it made complete sense to me i encourage our audience to go check it out as well kip that's i guess where we could look to make a difference going forward mm. where's cyber risk management evolving what's upcoming trends we need to be mindful of right the most important thing that i like that's happening right now is we're actually turning the corner on something really important which is cyber has been treated dominantly as a technical issue, as a technical risk. And for a long time, it was. When I first started working in this area, it was absolutely almost entirely technical. Now, in the Department of Defense in the United States, it was an organizational risk because the real issue was espionage, is that somebody would yeah. steal the secret. So in that yeah. case, it was a national defense issue, but still it was dominantly perceived through a technological lens. And that's where we all come from on this. And I get that, but we're about to turn a corner and there are lots of organizations that have already turned this corner, but I would say this is like an innovation adoption curve. There's early adopters. There aren't many of them. Right. They're turning the corner <laughs> right now. And so this innovation of treating cyber as a business risk not just as a technological risk, is something that's starting to take hold. And I think this is amazing because when you treat it as a business risk or as an organizational risk, you can now bring more of your existing resources into the problem space. And one example is what we already talked about, which is yeah. why shouldn't there be a dual authorization on a request to move money that comes in as an email? which email has no authentication whatsoever. It's totally untrusted. Anybody can say anything. Anyone can pose as anybody in email. So why shouldn't we have that? So there's process. You can make some process changes to combat cyber risk. You can train people, right? You can actually help them see their work a little differently so that they're a bit more on guard. From a management point of view, you can better set up your folks for success by making the right policies, by allocating the right resources and the right quantity of resources. And of course, there's all the technology. So you get four really powerful engines that you can put against cyber risk when you think of it as a business issue. And yeah. then I think you're really rising to the challenge that I've put in front of the audience, which is cyber is a material risk. And how else are you going to deal with it unless you bring all four of those dimensions into the picture? Yeah, there's probably a lot more dashboards emerging in organizations <clears throat> that starts breaking that down, allowing leaders to communicate that to their boards and whatever. Mm -hmm. This is what we're doing in this space. This is how we're dealing with these material risks. 
this is how we're driving value from some of those as well. So like uh, even down to that training one, are people aware of this? Yeah, yeah. And this is really something else I think is really cool about cyber. Not only is it a material risk that needs to be managed, but you can create business value from managing it. And think about that. That is really very powerful. And that really gets back to the name of my company. My company is called Cyber Risk Opportunities. And it's <laughs> called that because risk isn't all downside. Risk yeah, has upside. And I'm trying yeah, to make people yeah. see that, is that you can manage this risk and be better for it. Yeah. There's two things that come to mind when you say that. One is, uh, well, risk. If you can reduce risk, or the discount rate, mm -hmm. it actually should maximize the value if mm -hmm. you're looking at a net present value formula. So look, manage the risk down. It should, in theory, yeah. increase the value of the operation. The other thing is actually, again, back to the book it could be conceived as competitive advantage. I think so. I think you had the story of uh, the DHL, FedEx, TNT. Yes. And where, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them probably could have done better because I know some of our listeners from those companies, yes. so I'll be nice about it, but one of them could have done better and they, they didn't. And that opened an opportunity for the competitor. Right. Who had better, who also was impacted by this thing that was going on on the time. Yeah. Allowed them to maybe move ahead slightly right, and, in the market and yeah up some of the customers yeah. can i elaborate a little bit on what you just said yeah go on yeah, oh, i'll thank you. to be kind to them but go on i'm not going to throw okay. anybody under the bus i'm not going to throw <laughs> anybody under the bus but i'm going to tell you some things that are in the public okay i'm not going to tell you anything that i can't point to and say it's yeah, documented right. right here and so i just want to put some more specificity on this dhl and tnt express are competitors in the european market tnt express is owned by fedex Right after FedEx purchased TNT and started integrating the businesses, this crypto worm came out of the Ukraine and affected all kinds of businesses, Merck Pharmaceutical um, as well as, and so they lost control of their computers. Maersk lost Maersk, control of their yeah. Con yeah. computers. That was all part of the same incident. What happened was, is that DHL was affected, but not very much, as you said. TNT got destroyed. Their computer systems, they lost total control of them, just like Maersk did. And as a result, think about it. People who used to send through TNT but couldn't because they couldn't get anybody to come pick up packages, nor could they receive a package from TNT because all the packages were warehouse and were completely unknowable from one package to the next because their computers weren't available. It couldn't pick up a package, it couldn't deliver a package in their possession, but DHL could. So I'm going to immediately pick up my phone or repoint my computer web browser to DHL and I'm going to start using them. And that's what happened. If you look at the DHL public reports, the quarterly reports from the 2017-2018 time period, it's all there in black and white. You can see it. Coming out of NotPetya, they boomed. Revenue up, volume up, profit up. You go study the same reports from TNT, revenue down, volume down, profit down. In fact, on a quarterly earnings call, the CEO of FedEx said, if TNT had not been owned by FedEx and had not been able to tap into the financial resources of the parent company, they would have been bankrupt over that. That's amazing. And so what a competitive advantage. So all you know, DHL did was kept the doors open. That's all they did. That's all, yeah. And yeah. they accrued this massive benefit. They didn't put anything on sale. They ran no promotions. They didn't have to spend anything on marketing or anything like that. They just kept their doors open. And oh my goodness. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that powerful competitive advantage to just keeping your doors open when your main competitor cannot. 
Yeah, so coming back to Steve, the CFO. So there there he had in front of him something, a better website, yeah. improved the operations, more sales. Should have just given Kip the 25K <laughs> and it'd be grand. Competitive advantage. Yeah. So I like to make it sound all rosy, but I got to be honest with you. Cyber risk is difficult for people to understand. It's rarely discussed. The bad things that happen to people are wildly underreported. I told you a story about a very... It is embarrassing. There's a lot of shame. And so people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to report it to police. And it's very unpredictable. Cyber, like the NotPetya worm that I just described, is more like an earthquake and not a hurricane. People can see a hurricane coming. Nobody can see an earthquake coming, although we're trying to figure out how to forecast that. A couple of other things I just want to acknowledge about this uh, area. Perfect security is absolutely indistinguishable from no security at all until something bad happens. It's, it's like Mike Tyson say, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's right. That's right. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge That's that great. this is a difficult place. But if you can ground yourself on stuff that works, I'm a practitioner. Everything that I wrote in my book and everything I do is based on me being feet on the ground, working with people in the real world, getting things done. So that's what I have to share with people. Awesome. Hey, Kip, no, look, you've given us some fantastic advice there. And I love the stories. Again, want to be respectful of your time. So switching up a couple of gears, what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? So I, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of a 360 degree feedback or a full circle feedback. There's different names for them. But I went through that one time and oh my goodness, did I had my eyes really opened. The bottom line is it really helped me improve my relationships at work and at home. It was one of the most transformative things that's ever happened to me as a person. I was really nervous going into it. I was scared of what I was going <laughs> to, what people were going to say. And it was uncomfortable, but oh my gosh, that was just marvelous it was great i'm glad i went through it it was no fun going through it but i'm glad i went through it when you talk about the 360 was that where they interview your peers your colleagues people who work yeah, with you reporting right. to you seniors i don't know did they did i go so far as family members i know not mine <laughs> oh no, goodness but, but what i learned from that on the yeah. job i was able to take home because yeah, yeah. the things oh. i was doing at work were the same things i was doing at home and i was blind to most of it quite frankly i, I had no idea that when i said these things or did those things or didn't do that thing that everybody expected me to do but i didn't i had no idea how that was affecting my reputation and the way people saw me and and um, so I had my eyes opened and it really made a difference. Yeah, I was very lucky. I had a director once and he said, you should go do one of those. And uh, no, th- thankfully, no, they didn't interview the family. Yeah. <laughs> sort of things, but so many <laughs> blind spots. It's amazing what you're just not aware of and you think you're doing a good job. But actually, there's some really good feedback. And I know it definitely helped me go on a better course. Yeah, highly uh, recommend. Highly recommend. Talking of recommendations, I'd, I'd definitely recommend your audience check out your website plus your book. But are there any sort of other resources you recommend our audience go check out? Yeah, I just want to say a couple more things. There's a really great documentary that I want to recommend that'll help people understand what's going on today because there's some mega themes going on around the use of computers and how it's so deeply entwined now in our culture and our society and the way we do international relations and so forth. So if you haven't watched this documentary called Citizen Four, okay, this came out in 2014 and it's a documentary about Edward Snowden. And it was produced by Laura Portress, I believe is the correct, <laughs> as an ugly American, that's the way I say her last name, okay? So forgive me. It's probably, we'll a, there's, we'll, we'll there's probably a much better way of saying her name, but it's called Citizen Four. And so it's an unbelievably authentic look at Edward Snowden when he's in Hong Kong. This is just after he left the United States. He's in Hong Kong, he's hiding in a hotel room, and he's trying to figure out 
what's going to happen to him next. And as you watch this drama unfold, and this, this is literally just cameras rolling as everything's unfolding, but he tells you why he did what he did and he tells you what the threat is. And you can agree with Ed Snowden. You can say that he's a traitor. You can say he's a patriot. I don't care how you characterize him. It doesn't matter. But this movie, this documentary is going to help you understand what some of the big issues are that we still haven't sorted out yet and how they might affect you. So I think it's a wonderful story that's being told in this documentary. And I think it helps people attenuate them to, this is a, just a different cyber risk. I, I, I can't believe seven, eight years ago. It feels mm -hmm. like it was only yesterday. It does. It does. Wow. Yeah. But if you haven't seen it yet, I'd say go see it. Now, the other thing, other resource that I want to offer to your audience is, is actually, we talked about my book today and, and I don't think it's fair for me to talk about my book, but not give people an, an easy access to it. <laughs> Here's the thing. I want them to have a free PDF version of my book. My book's called Fire Doesn't Innovate. And it's written for non-technical audiences because there's this massive gap, which we've been talking about all during the episode, right? There's this gap between the technical people and the non-technical people. But we got to bridge that gap. And that's what my book is designed to do. So if you're a non-technical person, read the book, and then it'll help you talk to the techies. And if there's a technical person you want to talk to, give them a copy of my book and say, I want to do a book club with you because what's going to happen is you're going to get a shared language and you're going to be able to actually communicate about this. So I want you to have a free PDF version of my book. And on top of that, I want to throw a second free thing in because you said people, your, your audience likes free things, right? So I figured here's one free thing. Here's two free things. We actually have a guide that I wrote and it's to help CFOs know whether they have a ransomware proof data backup in place or not? And how do you go about figuring that out if you're not the person in charge of data backups? How do you do that? It seems impossible. It's that chasm that I talked about. Is How do you cross that chasm and have a productive conversation about something that's so desperately important? And it's a free guide, and, um, and I would love to give that to you as well. So you go to uh, this URL. It's cr-map.com forward slash Andrew, as in the host of this episode, if you go there, then just put your email address in there and we will send those two to you instantly. So I would love for your audience to take advantage of that. Awesome. Awesome. Look, we're going to put that in that link also in the show notes Great. as well. Kip, thank you so much for sharing those free resources. And even down to that second one there, you just, again, just a thought just went off in my head. That's an emerging area in finance, actually, is mm -hmm. should we be putting a value on our data? All these companies and organizations collecting data, but apparently we're only ever using or accessing 10% of it. Right. And should we put that value on our balance sheet? That's an emerging. And another know, thing that I would. protect it. You definitely have to protect it because from a GDPR perspective, some of that data yeah. is worth a lot because you're going to get in big trouble. As a percentage of your turnover, do you really want to give up a big percentage of your turnover because you've violated privacy. And so what I tell my customers is some of the data that you have is very valuable, but it, it's tainted. It's some of it is actually toxic waste because you mm -hmm. don't need it. But if it gets out of control, you're going to get very hurt. So you've got to be way more careful about what data you collect. And if you have to have it, fine, but you got to protect it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And extra, just on that GDPR, so a lot of our European listeners would probably get this, but even if you're an American listener, I think Facebook, they're based in Ireland where I live. Mm. They recently got a big fine from the data commissioner because they hadn't uh, put the due diligence around some of this right. GDPR stuff. Oh, so. There's so much to unpack there, Andrew, because GDPR, a lot of Americans don't understand this. GDPR is portable. So a, yeah. an EU citizen in the United States still carries the benefit of GDPR. That's... 
Yeah. I, I have to say it's an administrative nightmare it, if you're building it up and getting it ready. But actually, as a European citizen, I think it's great having it. And California, <laughs> the big state in the United States, California has a consumer protection law that is very closely yes. modeled on GDPR. And so if you do yes, business exactly. with any California resident, you're affected. So I think the, the point is that everybody's affected. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the default assumption we should all make with this as well. And I think it's just good practice and it's evolving. So people are getting better at this. Kip, again, wonderful thoughts in terms of uh, wrapping up. If our audience wish to connect with, continue the conversation and so on, where's the best place? I hang out on LinkedIn quite a bit. So if you just go to LinkedIn and search for my name, Kip Boyle, I think I'm the only one so far. I haven't met anybody else over there on LinkedIn with my name, but if you just search my name and then give me a connection request, tell me in the connection request, Hey, I heard you on Andrew's podcast. That way I'll know because I get a lot of connection requests and I don't want to miss yours. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Another way you can connect with me is go get those free resources that I offered you. When you do that, then I'll know who you are. And I write a bi-weekly email where I talk about the various inflection points in the evolution of cyber risk. And I write it for business audiences. And so you might want to get that. Awesome. Fantastic. I'd say that's probably another free resource. Maybe we should have free yeah. resources there now, Kip. <laughs> so Kip, uh, look, thanks to Mel for coming on our show. Would you have any parting thoughts for audience before we say goodbyes? I wish you well in the future, which is just going to be drenched in cyber risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a lovely one. That, I know. That's very positive. I know, but it's, but it's true, right? I'm sorry. And I guess I'm the bearer of bad news, but, but gosh, I just wouldn't want anybody to be caught by surprise, yeah. right? Yeah, no, it's a nice one. And it's, I think it's a sincere one as well. It's coming from a good yeah. place. I want good things. I want good things for your audience. Hey, Kim, seriously, thanks to Mel for coming on our show. You've been an awesome guest today. Anytime we talk, I feel like I always learn more from our conversations. Yeah, I hope we have many more. And again, thanks again for sharing yourself with our audience today. You're welcome, Andrew. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.